This is Words Matter. Welcome to the Words Matter Library. I'm Katie Barlow. Charlie Savage is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and a Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Charlie covers national security issues for The Times and is the author of Power Wars The Relentless Rise of Presidential Power and Secrecy. Charlie Savage, welcome to Words Matter. Thanks for having me. I'm joined today by my co-host, Adam Levine. Great to be here, Katie. Charlie, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you. Let's talk about your book, Power Wars, The Relentless Rise of Presidential Authority and Secrecy. The book was first published in 2015, and the subject has only become more important since then and more relevant, in some cases more dangerous. You've systematically revised and updated it to reflect subsequent events and and revelations. In the recent paperback edition, you set the following scene. At noon on Friday, January 20th, 2017, as Barack Obama looked on in his final moment in power, Donald Trump placed his hand upon a Bible and swore that he would, to the best of his ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Then, as the rain began to fall over the Washington Mall, the newly inaugurated 45th president of the United States vowed to, quote, unite the civilized world against radical Islamic terrorism, which we will eradicate completely from the face of the earth, quote, and announced, quote, from this day forward, it's going to be America first, end quote. This book explores how the United States got here. Let's start there. How did we get here? (laughs) Well, what I'm getting at there, of course, is tying what happened in the Obama administration to the fact that Donald Trump ended up inheriting a very powerful presidency, which included a variety of powers that Obama had in in turn inherited largely from Bush. And rather than relinquishing them, he had sanded off the rough edges and put them on a firmer legal basis and kept them available and curated them as tools that he thought the president ought to have as a matter of prudence, even if the president did not, you, you know, was careful to use them within norms and not recklessly and so forth. The premise, which is largely the topic of this book, it's, you know, how is it that with Barack Obama came in and defying the expectations created by his campaign rhetoric in 2008 that he, uh, on both by both supporters and critics of the Bush administration that he was going to end the war on terror and shut down um, uh, so much of what Bush and Cheney had put in place after 9-11, he ended up being accused of acting like Bush, of keeping powers available and even in some ways expanding them. So, you know, so he, even though he tried but failed to close Guantanamo, he decided not to repudiate military commissions, but to keep using them. He decided not to repudiate uh, holding people, terrorism suspects, without trial. His plan for closing Guantanamo is to keep holding those same people somewhere else without trial. And in some ways, he went further. He used expanded the drone campaign in places like Yemen and tribal Pakistan. He did something Bush never did, which was a, a kill an American citizen, Anwar Alaki, w- without a trial. And uh, I think in many ways, people thought that his vow to be the most transparent president ever uh, fell short over time. And to say nothing of various other sort of norm erosions later in his presidency outside of the national security context as he was dealing with a recalcitrant Republican Congress on matters like immigration and the Iran deal, which I guess is national security. So, But the premise of, of the evolution of Obama 
and his sort of measured, prudent, we should really not take this tool off the table because we might need it. It would be irresponsible to. Al-Qaeda remains a threat, so let's, it, so let's keep it available but put constraints on it and use it sparingly if at all but not – was that the presidency would be occupied by himself at first and then a successor who was a president with, uh, within normal parameters, which is to say Hillary Clinton or – Mitt Romney or John McCain, his his defeated Republican uh, opponents. Uh, and instead, he found himself handing off all these powers that he had curated and preserved and bolstered in certain respects to a man who's not known for respecting norms and limits and did not seem particularly concerned about things like human rights violations, civil liberties at home, civilian casualties abroad. Uh, and that raised the stakes, is my argument, in understanding how it was that the, a president that many people thought was going to change the war on terror really just kind of, or end it, uh, really just kind of right-sized it and kept it around and, 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 and kept the forever war going, maybe not because he wanted to, but because the world in which we live, in which he found himself operating, necessitated it. So we talk about kind of beginning the race mid-step, so to speak, transitioning power from President Obama to President Trump. But if we take a step back for a moment and just think about national security generally or even security and why we have it and, and really the, the idea of the social contract, you know, we, we enter, we go from the state of nature to the state of order and have government in part so that we can be protected, so that we can have security and and feel that as a country and, and as a people. President Obama as a constitutional scholar and as, as, a, as a professor obviously had his own beliefs on that. Do you think that Donald Trump approaches national security with with a belief of why we why we have it to begin with? Do you think he has his own thoughts and feelings about the social contract and about why we have security to begin with? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I haven't seen any evidence that Trump doesn't want to defend the country. Uh, he certainly has a different vision of it and you know and in recently the and so part of that vision is a lack of concern about blowback and the image of the United States abroad and you know Obama ring, wrung his hands and even Bush to some extent about uh, the ways in which Guantanamo for example became a recruiting symbol and uh, in which perceptions of American overreach or civilian casualties from bombings and stuff could you know, recruit new terrorists to the anti-American cause faster than we could kill the old ones. Trump does not seem to care about those kinds of optics at all. He wants the a, a strong, you know, bombs away approach. At the same, and 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 so some of his early moves were to unleash the military and the CIA from from some of the uh, constraints that Obama had imposed on them, especially for. Uh, drone strikes and other airstrikes outside of ordinary hot battlefields in places like Yemen, places like Somalia, places like tribal Pakistan. It's, you make your decision, bombs away, and we're not, you're not going to have to go through these high-level p- deliberations and so forth. And I think that it, it, it took a little while, but like right now we're seeing tremendous amounts of bombing in Somalia. No one's paying any attention to it. because, But you know, just this week, well, last week by the time this airs, there was – Three strikes, one of them killed 35 people, another killed 20 people, another killed several people, but also blew up some vehicles. You know, we're, we're waging war there in a way that has become – was enabled by Trump taking the, the leash off the military uh, in 2017. 
At the same time, though, Trump is trying to get out of Syria, and he clearly would like to get out of Afghanistan or wind things down. He's He's got this sort of isolationist, let other people handle it, why are we deployed around the world attitude. And it's been interesting to watch this unfold where the sort of ordinary national security advisors, even people like John Bolton, who's his national security advisor now, is a very aggressive um, let's use American force abroad, you know, big backer of the Iraq war back in the day and so forth, figure, and Jim Mattis, who resigned over the from the Secretary of Defense over the Syria pullout order, uh, are telling him, don't do it. This is going to unleash chaos. You know, ISIS isn't dead yet, and this will let them regenerate. And, uh, you know, these governments, these fledgling governments will collapse, and we've got to stay. And these are the same arguments that entrapped and uh, uh, Barack Obama, who also wanted to end the forever war and clearly, you know, wanted to get out of Iraq and wanted to wind down Afghanistan and declare the war over and couldn't because the world wasn't cooperating and things were still dangerous. And he didn't after the, you know, the rise of ISIS, in part because the U.S. did pull out of Iraq, it kept him from doing the same thing in Afghanistan because he heard these arguments and listened to them and felt he had no choice. And as a matter of prudence. It's possible that uh, one of the ironies of all this is it's, it's possible that a president like Trump, who at the end of the day has been accused of recklessness and does seem to think he knows better than everyone else and uh, is sort of maybe uh, decides which facts he wants to believe and which facts he doesn't want to believe based on what's expedient for what he wants to do rather than deciding what he wants to do based on the facts as they are. It may be that a president like that is the only kind of president that actually will be capable of pulling the U.S. out of this ever-expanding war on forever war on terror everywhere where there's a, a Muslim country with poor governance and, and terror groups that are running around that may or may not be capable of causing harm to us here because he doesn't care if people say people will die tomorrow if you pull out today. It, it may be that he's the only person who can 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 keep the United States from being at war in places like Somalia and Pakistan and 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 Yemen for the next hundred years, for better or worse. So that's, that's you know, we'll see. We're only two years into this, but it's fascinating uh, in, a, in a dynamic that doesn't often get remarked upon in that respect. One of the things I was struck by listening to your book was when I first started in politics and you start, first started covering government and on all these issues, there was always a discussion about the War Powers Act. It was in 1991 when President, first President Bush went into Iraq and when President Clinton took certain actions in the 1990s, there was a, I don't hear that anymore. I don't hear that ever. And I, it was 9-11, that demarcation point, and we just stopped talking about that. Um, is it more of our discussion about Congress ceding power to the executive? Or is it just something that is inoperative now in a 21st century world, that Article 2 power is has to operate differently than than it was envisioned. So for the listeners who may not be familiar with it, the War Powers Resolution, sometimes called the War Powers Act, uh, was passed over Richard Nixon's veto by Congress at the tail end of the Vietnam War. And the idea of it was Congress was trying to reclaim its voice in deciding when and where the United States would go to war. And the most important provision of it is that if the U.S. has deployed forces into hostilities or the threat of hostilities abroad, and Congress has not authorized that deployment, 
the law requires the president to bring them home to terminate that deployment within after 60 days have passed. This has not been a constraint on the forever war I'm talking about, the 9-11 war, because Congress authorized the use of military force against al-Qaeda a couple of weeks after, a week after uh, 9-11. And the executive branch under Bush and then Obama and now Trump have stretched that authorization. They've applied it to groups that are grew up after the original al-Qaeda, after 9-11, but became affiliated with it or offshoots. So al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, in Yemen, and uh, al-Shabaab in Somalia, most famously, of course, uh, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, which started as al-Qaeda as Iraq affiliated during the Iraq War and then broke with al-Qaeda. But uh, um, the government took the position under Obama that a split between two groups, one group into two groups, and one keeps the brand name and the other gets a new name, doesn't mean that the pre-existing authority to wage war against both factions disappears just because one renamed itself. That was controversial, but the controversy seems to have faded. So the, the the fact that they can keep pointing to that 2001 authorization for use of military force is why the War's Power Resolution has not been a, a constraint against this um, metastasis of the 9-11 war. I would disagree that it hasn't uh, been a hot issue since Bush, though, in other respects. It was a very important issue in 2011 when uh, Obama took the uni- unilaterally, that is, without Congress, took the United States into NATO's air war over Libya, which lasted much longer than they thought it was going to. And Obama ended up taking a very um, – so on the, to keep the war going on the 61st day, made a very disputed claim that the law didn't apply to an air war like that echoing something Clinton had done in Kosovo, by the way. And so that that's seen, I think, among executive power scholars as one of Obama's overreaches or, you know, places where he pushed on norms. And the uh, most recently, Congress has been trying to push the United States out of supporting the Saudi government and the United Emirates in its war against the Houthi rebels in Yemen uh, by trying to invoke the War Powers Resolution to say this that our support to them, our targeting assistance, our munitions and refueling assistance amounts to being deployed into hostilities even though we ourselves are not dropping bombs and we ought to stop it. Uh, it won't work. They don't have the votes to override a veto even if it got through the Senate and so forth, But uh, which I think it did actually late last year. Um, but um, it's it's a place where the, the word is on people's lips again. It's just – but basically the the takeaway is that in one way or another, presidents have found ways to continue to deploy forces into combat-type situations since 1974 on their own. And the War Powers Resolution has been a failure as an attempt to rein in that practice, which was sort of a hallmark of the imperial presidency era post-World War II, dating back to Truman going into Korea by himself. One of the things that Congress did do, and you mentioned this earlier, the, the legal linchpin for the modern war on terror and, and many of the things that, that the country has done in that vein uh, is the authorization for the use of military force. And you, you spoke about it earlier that it keeps getting applied and, and keeps getting extended. But do you think maybe we're, e- we're reaching the end of the road for the application of the AUMF because – 
for one, it was originally passed as applied to al-Qaeda. And it hasn't, to my knowledge, been applied by the government, um, certainly in any court, to the Islamic State. And I think the evidence for that most recently is that uh, the U.S. government was detaining an American citizen abroad. And the question of whether the AUMF applied to the Islamic State was going to come up uh, in the validity of that detention. um, But it kind of resolved itself uh, before the D.C. Circuit in this case was able to answer that question. Do you think we're reaching the end of the road in in the application of the AUMF and in those expanded powers under that authorization? Yes and no. It has been the case for, for some years now, various people in Congress, perhaps most notably Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia, have been arguing that the the AUMF of uh, of 2001 has been stretched too far. You know, it wasn't even actually against al-Qaeda. It was against the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks who are, for the most part, dead, except for Zawahiri um, and the the few guys down at Guantanamo who maybe someday will get a trial. But there's been tremendous difficulty in Congress in the question of, well, if we reject the executive branch's stretching of it to apply to what it's doing today, what do we replace it with? And the problem is that some people don't want to place any new limits on the president's or the executive branch's authority. They will not stand for taking power away from from the executive branch to do what it's currently doing in places like Somalia and Yemen and so forth. That's the sort of like the, the Senator Tom Cotton point of view. And other people, especially Democrats, don't want to write a new blank check for a forever war. So they say, well, let's let's replace it with an AUMF that will only last three years and then will sunset or that will not permit – uh, you know, the president to use ground forces in some new place that he's not used without first coming to Congress. And so and so they're not going to vote for So there's a faction that's not going to vote for a blank check. There's a faction that will only vote for a blank check. And there's not and it's not clear that at that point there's any purpose that anything can get through Congress that w- would command uh, majority support or, or filibuster proof support. And that's why we were sort of paralyzed in this increasingly tattered Legal authority remains the de facto basis of what the U.S. government through pre- three presidents now is, is doing. You're right that the executive branch is desperate to keep this from coming before a judge. And in particular, uh, the, the stretching of it to ISIS, which is not part of al-Qaeda anymore and in fact is at war with al-Qaeda – uh, was a uh, is, is something they don't they don't want to test and they don't that, that's why they, they haven't brought any ISIS detainees to Guantanamo despite all of Trump's saber rattling about how he's going to fill it up back up with bad guys bad dudes he's not brought a single prisoner there and that is because uh, that would immediately give someone standing to challenge the theory that the UMF authorizes the war against ISIS and if a judge were to rule no that's a step too far that wouldn't just result in there not being authority to hold that particular person, it would mean that the entire war effort against ISIS was has no legal basis. It would just mess things up from top to bottom. And that's why they've been also in the case that you mentioned, this US, this dual U.S.-Saudi citizen that was uh, held for a year. They were desperate to get rid of him before they had to test whether they had legal authority to uh, hold him in the first place, which is why he's now a free man in Bahrain. Sounds like a good topic for the next book, too. Charlie Savage, thank you. You can listen to your book, Power Wars, The Relentless Rise of Presidential Authority and Secrecy on Audible. It's a great listen. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Words Matter will be right back here next week. We hope you will be, too. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. 
please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.